As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. And our guest today is Duncan Niederau, a former Goldman Sachs banker who served as chief executive of the New York Stock Exchange and is currently president and majority shareholder of Italian Serie A side Venezia. So first of all, Duncan, as we ask everybody, how did you get from the New York Stock Exchange to uh, Venezia? So I grew up um, in the financial services industry on Wall Street uh, from my early 20s to uh, about five or six years ago, sometime uh, at an investment bank, um, and then six or seven years uh, running the New York Stock Exchange. And that was through the financial crisis. So a lot of a lot of lessons learned. I hope the lessons I learned, I never have to share with anyone else, because I hope there's never another crisis like that. But at least I, you know, I can be a resource for them if there is one. And then uh, subsequent to that, I decided that it would be more interesting to run a portfolio instead of just having one job that was all consuming. So I sit on a few for-profit and non-profit boards, public and private companies, run a wealth management firm, partner in a venture fund. And for reasons known only to me, uh, I'm also involved in Italian football. A little bit by accident, a little bit by choice, but definitely I love the intersection of sports and business, and I've never had the opportunity to work at that intersection. So that's part of what I'm trying to do is keep learning. What's the biggest thing you've learned? That I really didn't know, you know, that I had a lot more to learn than you probably would have suspected you did. So we came into it pretty humbly. And then you realize it's just a very, very different business model than anything I've encountered. And it, it, takes time to, it takes time to understand it, right? I know how I like to run businesses. And some of that is very, very transferable. And other parts of it are, are harder to do. Because, uh, you know, you, the, the relationship with the people who work for the club and who you work for, I thought it would be more similar to other businesses I've run. And as I said, parts of it are, parts of it have not been. How difficult then is it to gain an understanding of a, of a completely new industry that you're 
going into? It's a great question. And it's one it's one I get asked a lot because, uh, you know, I had no background in doing this. Right. You know, I'm not embarrassed to admit to you guys at one of the first meetings I had the guys who I had who I had brought in to help me on the sporting and analytics side were throwing numbers around. And I understood they were all one through 11. So I kind of understood they must correspond to the 11 guys on the pitch, <laughs> but, I, but I didn't know which number was which position. Uh, Cause I just, I never, I played a lot of sports and I played, you know, I played football in the backyard or soccer in the backyard, but you know, I was on other, you know, it was more just recreational. So I didn't really, I never played seriously. Um, and it's not a game I was that familiar with. I had a lot to learn about this new industry I did think that two things would be fundamental. One, talent identification had to be rooted in analytics, not exclusively, but that had to be an important component to it. And the second thing that I thought was really important was that once we learned what we were dealing with, we had to do our level best to take a long-term view. And as you guys are probably aware, an analytical approach and a long-term view are not often used in the same sentence with Italian football historically. So from the outset, I think people thought we were a bit different. And if I may say so, a bit strange. <laughs> I, I think, you know, whenever, as you guys know, whenever you're in the minority in a way of thinking, it, it's easy for the majority who history tells us is not, who's, you know, history tells us the track record of the majority is not always great. You're a bit of an outsider, you admit that you don't really understand the business and you have a lot to learn. And then you, on top of that, impose some new ideas. You know, there were a lot of folks who right from the outset said, you know, this was going to fail because we had no idea what we were doing. I asked this question uh, partly from what you've said about you being considered strange, but also from many conversations on this podcast with Americans who have got involved in a variety of clubs, Scotland, England, Belgium, wherever it may be. Do you think you have to work harder as an American in European football to convince people of your intentions? I don't know if it's about hard work because I I don't know any other way than hard work. The way I would put it is as follows. When I first met with the journalists who obviously were, you know, the, the conduit to the public, when we first took over, I said, guys, you're not going to hear from me very often. I think words are cheap. As Monty Williams, one of the basketball coaches here, has recently said, and I think it's elegantly simple, you know, well done is better than well said. If you're reasonably articulate, you can, and prepared, you can give a very good set of remarks to someone that gives them a great deal of comfort that how serious you are and how committed you are. Ultimately, it comes down to what you do, not what you say. And so I simply said to the journalists, like, measure us on what we do. Don't measure us on what we say, because I think words are just blah, blah, blah most of the time. And I think then they've seen in our actions, I think, a level of commitment. And that's how I think we've that's how I think we've shown that just by simply doing the work. I just want to go back a little bit. I know you said it was for reasons that are something of a mystery. But come yeah. on. I mean, you, you know, a New York Stock Exchange to Venezia, you know, yeah. how? Come on, really? As I've said to um, peers of yours in the industry, 
assuming you guys have peers, maybe you don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's one of those things in life, Matt, as you, as you get older, you focus on uh, not only financial dividends and returns, but non-financial ones, right? And I don't say that to be trite or cheeky or whatever. I mean it. Venice is my wife's favorite city in the world. It's my favorite city in the world, partly because it's hers. But if I'm honest, I like <laughs> it. Helps. Uh, it helps. When we had this opportunity, you know, we'd been involved passively in the club before that. Um, but we weren't really involved. And what I had learned by the middle of the 1920 season is I don't do passive very well. If I'm going to learn something, I like to apply the learning. I like to be responsible for the outcome, good or bad. And so when we had the opportunity to do this in 2020, part of it was we thought it was a good entry point. They were struggling in Serie B at the moment. So the price was you know, very affordable at the time. And we knew we'd have to put a lot more in behind it. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a lot about Venice, too. You know, and I, I tell you the truth, if this opportunity had presented itself in another city in Italy or another country in Europe, that's for a lot of other guys. It would not have been for us. This was a situation I was a little familiar with already. We thought we had a chance to do something really special for a city that we love. One of my philosophies in life, which I'm sure is a lot of people's philosophy, is if you leave every situation better than you found it, you've lived a good life. And we thought there was a chance to do right by the players, the fans, the city, and the staff. And I think in two years, I think it's fair to say we've done that. We've got a long way to go, but I think the first two years, I think, have probably been more successful than we would have dreamed. Just to our listeners that, that don't know the full Venezia story, certainly in, in recent years. So am I right in thinking, so Joe Tacopina, uh, you know, another U.S. investor, bought the club in 2015, I think, when yep, they were Serie yeah. D, so fourth tier, got yep. them up to the second tier but in 2019 things were things were getting harder things were getting difficult and i think the club narrowly avoided relegation back to the third tier because palermo had 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 worse so so they sort of you know kind of dodged a relegation there but that's when you came in and since then stabilized the club and then you had a, a fantastic promotion winning season through the playoffs Hard way to yeah, get abs- in, right? Well, absolutely. And and the record of promoted teams through the playoffs in Italy is is you know it's not great in Syria, is it? They you know yeah. you, you start off at a massive disadvantage. Same in the same in England, to be honest. But you, yeah. you you're in you're in it. You're actually in it. I mean, I know you've just dipped into yeah. the, the relegation zone over the weekend, but yeah, but, yeah, but it's yeah. it's tight. Yeah, it's tight. I look, I, I think it's uh and I'll be talking to the players later in the week because uh you know one of our other philosophies is we stay very close to them. And I have not been close to them because I've been so busy here the last few weeks and I feel badly about it. Um, So I'm going to catch up with them. I'll probably just do a video call later in the week. And, uh, you know, you you guys are closer to this than I've ever been. So you you know what's happening right now. Right. So you get excited. Your your recent, you know, um, recounting of the recent history is correct. You know, we were basically on our way to leg a pro were it not for Palermo's misstep. The next season started poorly. And those of us who were involved passively, I think just kind of got frustrated because we thought there was a better way, but we weren't willing to 
orchestrate that without more control. When we took over mid-season, it was right before COVID. So that kind of put, boy, we started with pretty humble aspirations and that made them even humbler because then we couldn't really do anything. So then I spent a lot of time with the guys getting to know them in the spring. They played fantastically well down the stretch to you know, to survive in Serie B, I think that really laid the foundation for the success we had last season. And you guys know how it works, right? The so-called experts, their rankings for the coming season are highly correlated to the rankings that finished at the end of last season, right? So how that qualifies them as experts, I'm not really sure, but whatever. I was actually happy they picked us to finish near the bottom of Serie B last year because it was a call to action for all of us, right? And the boys spent the year proving that the experts were wrong. And then the playoff gauntlet, look, we played great. We got a few lucky breaks. You have to, right, when you're running that gauntlet. Um, But we deserved it, right? The players deserved it. And I was really happy for them. So then you get to Syria, and of course, you're now a genius and a hero because you're ahead of schedule. And the first third of the season, the team played, I think, above expectation. You know, if you take out in the first third of the season, Roma, Bologna, and Fiorentina, and Empoli, everyone's like, wow, these kids can play, and they can you know, then the middle third of the season was quite tough. As recently as the last few days, this, I mean, this is the first time we've been in the relegation zone all season. And now you know how it works. Now every decision is going to be second guessed. Every mistake that a player makes is going to be magnified. Every mistake that I make or the coach makes is going to be magnified. So part of what we're hoping we can lean on now is each other and the culture we've created to say, hey, guys, Nothing really changed other than the results of a few matches. You're the same players. You're just as good as you were in the first third of the season. But you know you know how it works, guys, right? It's going to be, you go from the penthouse to the outhouse pretty quickly and vice versa, right? And you've already given an indication then of what of what you will say to the players. I'm intrigued about your what you talk about, your, your closeness to, to the players and how you communicate with them. As, a, as an outsider, really, and how careful you are not to step on your head coach's toes in whatever message you give. Your, your messages are more on a human, personal level, I'm guessing. Yep, correct. I'm not going to be calling Zanetti, who I affectionately call Zorro. I'm not going to be calling Zorro saying, hey, I think you know Matt should play right defender this week. I, I have no grounds on which to make that call, so I don't. Right. I leave the technical decisions to the coach and the analytics team and the mat, the match strategy. Like I'm happy to learn and listen, but I, I, no one's asking me my opinion and I'm not offended. They shouldn't be uh, because just because, you know, I'm one of the owners of the club with friends of mine. That doesn't mean we get a vote in some of those kinds of decisions. I think that would be a broken model if we did. Right. We have to trust the people we've empowered with the authority. They have to make the decisions. So you're exactly right. My outreach to the players is mostly uh, personal. It's almost entirely supportive. It's people have said it's a little Ted Lasso like I hadn't even watched Ted Lasso when I started doing this. So I don't know if he's emulating us or we're emulating him. But <laughs> it seems to be working for both of us. And I, you know, I, it was recommended that we not be close to the players. You know, one of the pieces of advice I got from almost everyone was don't text them, don't call them, don't get close to them. It will cloud your judgment. 
So I respectfully disagree. It doesn't cloud my judgment. I found it very effective to stay close to them. In fact, I, that's why I feel like the last few weeks, I haven't been as close to them as I normally am, and I feel badly about it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I sense at the moment, Duncan, that any American connected to football keeps getting linked with Ted Lasso, whether it's a a Manchester United assistant coach or the new manager of Leeds. Immediately, (laughs) Ted Lasso seems to be trending and doing the rounds. Your insight into the city and how much you love the city and how that led you to the club and your closeness to the players and, and, and the community that you have there is evident. How much are you looking at the bigger Serie A picture? As a, as a president of a club in that division? It's great timing that you asked that because uh, one, one of the places where I actually do, with all humility, think I could be very helpful to them is turning Syria into the, you know, a multinational media and branding company, which it should be, right? And I think a number of us with the background from the professional leagues here, and you guys too, with what the Premier League has done, no one can say it's impossible. We have plenty of evidence that it's quite possible, right? But there needs to be, again, there needs to be a long-term view. And, you know, my, my point of view, and I've said this publicly, is that if the big clubs continue to, to find ways to carve up the same pie in a way that is better for a handful of them and not great for the rest of the ecosystem, not just the rest of Syria, by the way, you know, the hundred clubs that are in Siri A, B and Siri G, they're missing the forest for the trees. Like we should be focused on ways to make the pie three times as big 
and then everybody's a winner and you have a much, much healthier ecosystem. I look forward to being at the table to help them wrestle with some of those decisions because that's a place where I could be really useful. Obviously, to have a seat at the table, we need to we need, <laughs> we need to survive, right? I mean, I may not be at the table next year. I volunteered to the league and I volunteered to the leadership and said, guys, t- tap me. Like, this is a place where we can really be helpful to you. And we don't want anything in return other than a better system. Like, let's face it, guys, Syria should not be number five on the list of the five top leagues in Europe. No way. The, the talent is fantastic. It's an international league. It should have much more followership in other parts of the world than it does. And, and that's on us, right? That's on the league. So, Duncan, given that you you said there is an area, this is it, that you and like-minded people can help, you, you I'm looking at the ownership makeup of Italian football. It's changing. It's changing in front of our eyes. You know, you are part of a wave of, of North yeah. American investment and talent and insight. Do you talk to each other? Yeah, for sure. Are you forming a... Well, you know, a wedge? Are you are you a, are you a block within within the group? But I mean, in a nice way, be it, you know, not. Yeah, it's not a it's not about a voting block. It's not the reason to do that. It's you know, some of us from the smaller clubs are trying to learn from the owners of the bigger clubs to say, guys, look, while we have a seat at the table, put us in. Like, tell us what we can do to advance the ball. Because, like, I, I I mean what I say. I the, I just want the ecosystem to be healthier. Because then it doesn't really matter as much. Yeah, we'd rather stay in Syria. But for all the other clubs where Syria is probably not a reality, you can't have the other 80 clubs in the ecosystem of the second and third division constantly, the, the majority of them constantly teetering on, you know, solvency. It's just, it, it's not, it's not sensical, right? And it's not a, it's not a sustainable business model. So the group of us talk to compare notes to, to understand you know, what can we do to try to move the ball forward? And obviously this is not to suggest that America's cracked the code on this, but we've got three or four professional leagues in the States that have really figured out value creation, right? And in a way that Syria has not figured out yet. And it's not rocket science. It's not the invention of something that hasn't been invented yet. It's taking a, a well-worn playbook and running that playbook. So that's where we try to use our collective influence is to say to the guys, you know, when the big clubs in the big sports in the U.S. were faced with a similar decision, I'm sure they went into it with trepidation as well. And now history tells us it was one of the best decisions they ever made when they shared the wealth. But it's a tough decision to make when you're faced with it the first time, because you really have to believe that the enterprise is going to grow in value exponentially or you wouldn't vote to change it because it works for the big clubs right now. That's where we're trying to help them. And it's very helpful that some of the American owned clubs are big clubs. So if they're at the table and Roma's at the table and Milan's at the table, and now Atalanta will be at the table with, with, uh, with the Bain folks, you know, and they're sitting there going, guys, let's run the play. I think it's easier to, to see our way forward. And then I, I think Serie A can return to its former preeminence. Why not, right? The Premier League is living proof of that. You can do it. In the discussions that you have, do you, do you think those that aren't on board with you are governed by, is it more their self-interest or is it more a lack of trust in you? I don't think it's either. I think it's a fear of 
the uncertainty of the future if they changed it, right? Because, because I think they, if you're a big club and the system is working for you, it's not clear to me that they wake up every day and are saying, how do we make the ecosystem better? And what the big clubs and the big sports in the U.S. did was it took them a while, but when they came to grips with it, they understood that there were much more equitable ways to slice the pie that ultimately would make for a better product, you know, on the field or on the pitch. And they've done it. Let's face it, guys. I mean, I'm being really candid with you. You could probably predict with good accuracy what the top third of the table in Syria is going to look like every year. You may get the order wrong, but the three of us would not be that if you said, hey, guys, who's going to finish? What does the top six look like to you? Top seven? I think we're going to all bat pretty close to a thousand year in and year out. And, and the challenge is it never really changes. And it's hard to change when the smaller club's share of the media rights, for example, doesn't really enable them to put a 200 million euro payroll on the pitch every week. Like we can't do that. We have the same conversation here. I know that the redistribution is is a fairer model. It's a it's a closer ratio, closer to what you're used to in North America and in, in, in England. But it, it's still a it's a live debate here. The difference between our first tier and our second tier, and it's we we have this conversation every week. But I but but that's so we've done sort of the bigger picture. If we just talk a little bit about what you've done at Valencia already, I mean, the, the social media is fantastic. The kit, everything, everyone, I think everyone is aware of your fantastic kits. And, you know, we've seen that. And I remember the promotion party pictures were fabulous. So you've really created a buzz around the club, which I think, well, I mean, how intentional was that? Was that was that sort of on your plan? Very. And we're really lucky when you have an asset like the city of Venice, as your backdrop, that gives you, I think, the ability to do what you just described, Matt, faster. If you had a city that didn't have this backdrop, I think it would be harder to create that buzz. But it's it's a place that almost everyone in the world knows. That was what we thought was part of the opportunity. I think the success with the with the kit this season, that was, you know, serendipitous timing for us, right? We thought it was really cool. But the, fa- the fact that we're introducing that as we're going into Syria for the first time in two decades, like sometimes you're lucky more than you're smart. I thought we did a really good job. The team did a great job with the kit. We made a conscious decision to partner with Kappa. It was not a shot at Nike. I know the CEO of Nike. I mean, we've been we've known each other for a long time. Like we were a small fish. They, they shouldn't have really been paying much attention to us, if I'm honest. And we thought having a partner who was closer to home, easier to work with, easier to collaborate with, who understood that we weren't a big fish would be a good partner. So the kit came out great. The victory parade, I've said this to other journalists. I said to my wife um, when we were you know floating down the Grand Canal in the victory parade, there will be a time in life where we may not remember each other's names but we will remember floating down the Grand Canal with behind the boys, right? Different in the victory parade, because there's nothing, there's nothing like it, guys. I gotta tell you, I've, the victory parades are great. I don't think anyone would be like that. So we, it was a conscious decision. And the balance we're trying to strike, Matt, is I don't wanna do that in a way that offends the local fan base. And I think we're still learning how to strike the right balance. For us to be successful, and especially with an international city behind us, it's incumbent on us to have international followership 
And Syria gives us a platform to do that, right? Because when we were in Serie B, you couldn't even find our matches on TV in the States. Now every match is on, you know, is obviously on all 38 matches you can watch easily here. So we don't want to miss that opportunity. And we do want an international fan base. But I think we're still learning to strike the balance to make sure we pay enough attention to the people who support us week in and week out. And we're not there yet. We're trying. But yeah, it was it was definitely a conscious decision. And I think the kit's going to be hard to follow up. But having seen my wife and I just saw some, you know, a kind of a sneak peek. And I it's a tough act to follow, but I think we're going to follow it pretty successfully. It's an interesting balance that, isn't it? That That is there for, for every sport, uh, every sporting organization. Yep. Uh, no matter what, no matter what league, no matter what country, you have got to get the balance right between globalizing your club whilst not leaving your local communities behind. Because if, exactly. if you leave your local community behind, you're screwed, aren't you? Yeah, and I, I think so. And you know what? We probably should be if we leave them behind. Like, I think we deserve it. I, I don't sit there and say, well, too bad. You know, the only, we, we have a pretty good relationship with the local fan base. In fact, you know, we usually congregate in the same neighborhood before matches. I went over to the pub, a bunch of them were in and put my card down and bought everyone a, uh, some drinks a few weeks ago when I was there. So that made me popular for those 15 minutes. <laughs> One time when I was very unpopular, as much as the world loved our jersey, the local fan base did not. Their explanation to me was very clear. The, the, the orange and green were subordinated. And they didn't like it. They thought it was a black and gold jersey with a touch of orange and green and they didn't like it. And they were quite vocal about not liking it. So, you know, you, that's another example where you try to strike the right balance. Um, I don't think it was my finest moment. I kind of, I told them too bad. I probably could have had a more thoughtful response than that. Duncan, about, right. about the um, the strengths and weaknesses of, of your city and making the most of those. I mean, one of the obvious weaknesses, I guess, of Venice is, is land, right? And your stadium, you're limited. I mean, I've got my own venice girlfriend story uh, this was about 20 odd years ago i remember we were on one of the boats going out to i can't remember which the island with the glass blowing and i, I remember seeing the stadium yeah i remember seeing the stadium go oh, you know I, I i can we not go to a game there and it was a, it was a quick no that was going to be a sort of this 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 city break will not go well if we go there but i've always <laughs> i've always remembered that stadium just being sort of perched right on a canal it's tiny I mean, it's, but it's charming. It's tiny and we have to be realistic, right? It's, and that's another, you, you hit the nail on the head, man. It's another tough balancing act, right? I, I would argue that there is not a nicer boutique stadium in Europe. And I use the word boutique only half tongue in cheek, right? I mean, we can never have more than 12 to 15,000 seats there, right? I don't think the city would approve it. You know, the league wants us to have sort of 15 or 16, we may stay at 12. We'll, we'll negotiate that if we're, if we, you know, when we survive at the end of the season, but you're exactly right. Like it's never going to be a 40,000 seat stadium, no matter how successful we are, it can't be. So there are plans to build a bigger sporting complex on the mainland. The mayor's is the author of this plan. It would include the basketball arena, the football stadium, you know, some other, 
um, facilities. It might be, you know, whether it's a commercial air center or a hotel, whatever, you know, but realistically, that's that's a half a dozen years from now, probably um, if everything goes well. So, you know, we just refurbished the stadium. I'd encourage both of you guys to come and see a match. I it is such a and there's no setting like it. There's just no setting like it. Um, and yeah, do you get there by boat? I think it's kind of cool that you get there by boat. I'm not going to need much encouragement, Duncan, to, to come and watch a game there. Trust me. So thank you very much. That's a very yeah. kind invite. Final one, because I know you're really busy. I know you have to go. Just on, just when you were talking about the stadium then, I think that was really interesting because you mentioned other things within the stadium or within the stadium complex. Do all stadia, do you think, in the, in the modern sporting world, need to be multi-purpose? Maybe not not to the extent of the Rams and SoFi and the three billion dollar village, but yeah. but do most stadia now to work for their communities and work financially be multi-purpose? Yeah, I think they have to. And uh, so I'll give you two examples. One, you're absolutely right about the stadiums. I think there is no future for a one-dimensional venue anymore. And I don't mean by that the venues that you had in Italy 30 years ago with the running track around the outside. Like if you guys do come to the Penzo, you feel like you're in the on the pitch with the boys. All the fences are down, all the netting is down. You're you're and there's no space between the field. The pitch view seats, you're literally like you're sitting next to the players and the you could get hit with the ball pretty easily. To me, even at a place like the Penzo, we should be able to host other events there, right? Concerts or whatever it might be. And I think the future to make the money work. Like just like the indoor arenas, they're used two or three hundred nights a year in the U.S. There's usually a sporting team or two that is the anchor tenant, but then there's many other events that take place inside there. So I think it has to be the same. I feel differently about the training center. We're actually investing a good bit of money this year in a brand new headquarters building that will be at the site of the training grounds, because my idea is if our culture is one of family then I want the players and the staff and the youth academy and the women's team. I want everybody going to the same home every day. And if you guys think about it, we use the Penzo 20 days a year. We use the training center 250 days a year, right? Or 200 days a year. You're at the training center way more than you're at the stadium. So we're actually putting more money into making a state-of-the-art training center so that the whole family can remind each other that they work for each other. Like the players are part of the fabric of the club and the staff understands that, you know, we need to help the players. Everyone is kind of in this, you know, we're all together. It absolutely does. Thank you so much. If you guys ever want to come, just let one of us know and we'd be loved. We'd love to uh, have you guys. <laughs> and, uh, and Matt, I promise you can go to a match and Murano. The, the uh, I know. That's why it was so tempting. I went past it. Yeah. You were not <laughs> exclusive. Yeah. And, and they're both they're both must sees. I'll leave you guys with this. They're, you know, my let's my wife and I had been to Venice many 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 times, and we had no idea they even had a team there. And one of the things we're trying to change is when you come to Venice, you you actually know there's a team, and you might even want to take in a match while you're there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so let us know. All right, boys, enjoy the rest of your day. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Duncan. Take care. Good luck. Bye-bye. Yeah, my pleasure. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye.
That's it. Thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. The Athletic.